You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Triple Content Creations and Podcast Jukebox present bonus content. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for clicking on this bonus episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza, and I am your disabled dick smith, here to shine that bright light on sex and disability with you. This episode is a bonus one that I'm really excited about, so get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and let's get started. This episode came about because I was looking for places where I can go give talks around sex and disability in the U.S. I was looking for universities that I could approach an email about doing a talk, and I just was looking to create some contacts and that kind of stuff. And I was looking at things, and I stumbled across a paper about Crip Sexuality and Shakespeare. And I was like, what is... or not, not a paper, rather. I stumbled across a, a lecture series by a professor from Willamette University in Oregon, and they did a lecture series on Crip sexualities and Shakespeare. And I was like, this is such a cool bringing together of two parts of scholarship that I'd never considered, disability studies and Shakespeare. And I immediately fell in love with this professor's work. And I just sent them a cold email and said, I love what you're trying to do here. Would you want to come on my show and talk about history, sexuality and Shakespeare? And she said yes. So I sit down with Dr. Allison P. Hobgood, an associate professor of English in the Women's and Gender Studies program at Willamette University, and we have a really interesting talk about history, sexuality, disability, Shakespeare, art, um, contagion. She, she, we, we speak about a play Shakespeare wrote called Measure for Measure and how disability politics is played out in that play around sexuality and it was a really interesting talk it got my history my, like I'm, a, I'm a big history nerd so we like nerded out together about Shakespeare and history um, we talk about what crips and gimps from the past can teach us about our sexy crip, our sexy crip and gimp futures we just had a fun chat and this episode kind of goes all over the place and it's just us nerding out together and I just love it and I wanted to share it with you as a bonus episode because I think talking about disabled stories and history 
is important and I found a way to connect sex and disability and history together in a cool way and I wanted to share that with you. So that's really the, the crux of this interview. So here it is. Enjoy my interview with Dr. Allison P. Hobgood as we interrogate whether Shakespeare, sex, and disability actually go together, right now on Disability After Dark. Alison Hobgood, hello. Hi, hi, happy to be here. Hi, I'm so excited that you're on Disability After Dark. Thank you for taking the time today and for moving your schedule around to be here for this. Um, Thank you, I'm honored. I was, I am so, I was so excited when I stumbled across one of your lecture series. I was actually looking at schools where I could le- could guest lecture my stuff around sex and disability, and I was just looking at, like, U.S. schools that I could pimp myself out to and be like, hey, I'm here, like, hire me, please, I'm here, please. All right. I somehow, I don't know how, but I stumbled on you just randomly, and you, I don't remember what the talk was called, but you were doing a talk uh, was it Willamette where you were talking? No, it was another school, right? So it's no, yeah. So it wasn't at my home school, which actually is Willamette, and it's hard to remember. But if you remember Willamette, damn it, which oh. is a very useful tool for me. Oh. When I first when I first moved west, I I had been drinking like Pinots and was like, yes, from the Willamette Valley. And then I got out of here, and they're like, that's not how you say it. And I was like, okay. But Willamette so, Willamette. Sounds so like. So like posh and classy and like it does. Well, it turns out I'm not neither posh nor classy. So so Willamette is the one that is. But no, I was actually giving a talk. I think at um, uh, where was I? I was at uh, was uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and I think you stumbled across. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I stumbled across some of the work you're doing around around crip sexuality and and Shakespeare, and I was like, oh my god! I'm I literally I remember reading your abstract on the site being like, what the fuck is this? This is, <laughs> this is so awesome. And I was kind of like dumbfounded because these things, these two areas of study, Shakespeare and disability studies, especially around sexuality, don't ever, I've never, I never saw them put together until I literally read your abstract. And I was like, that is the most interesting thing I've read in a while. I need to email this person. And I just emailed you and said, Oh my goodness, you don't know me. Like I read your stuff, but I want to talk to you. Can we chat, please? It was great. We were meant to be. <laughs> so meant to be. Um, so tell me kind of about like how the field of disability studies and crypt studies and Shakespeare go together. Can you kind of explain that? For us? Yeah, totally. So maybe just in case um, listeners don't know, I'll just say a little bit about disability studies first. Does that seem useful? Or yeah, please. Okay. So so I work in a field that's called disability studies, and the field has done some really important advocacy work in establishing disability as like a defining social category that that's comparable to race and class and gender, um, and even though it's an academic field, it works, at least I think the best work in this field, it works to translate scholarly academic work into like on the ground civil rights activism. Um, So it it helps us to, I mean, obviously it's working against anti-ableist politics, but it it really has helped us to reimagine disability like as a social category, not an individual characteristic or somebody's pathological problem. Yeah, so it really like, it really reinforces like the social model of disability. 
Exactly, 100%, right? A human biodiversity is important. It's something that, that has gain. Um, you know, what, impairments aren't necessarily physiological problems that, that need to be cured by the medical industrial complex. So it's what I love about it. And when I came to it um, academically, it's just, it's it's this way of kind of like radically re-envisioning the world. And I, I it makes us rethink what it, like what it means to be human. I think that's super cool. That is really um, cool. I also love that as you're talking, Listeners, you can't see this, but as a drag Allison has like notes, which I just think is like, as a fellow academic who's also done <laughs> academic stuff, when when you said you had notes, I was like, oh yeah, this brings me back to like my college days. So it feels super nice that you're like, you pulled out a notepad just now and like whipped through a page of notes. Oh well, I like to be prepared. I feel honored to be your guest, and I don't want to, you know, this this is a great show. So I like that. Um, well, so so that's the disability studies piece. To come back to your question, though, the the link, I guess, the the link or like the the uh, points of connection to Shakespeare. I mean, when I teach my Shakespeare class, the first thing that I say to my students is that like this guy and his work is super sexy, and we need to stop imagining like the Bard. I imagine British accent there, right? But as this like superhero, the Bard, author, the bard right? Yeah. That, that he's not this, this superhero author who's really untouchable and hard to understand because he's so smart. I think students get um, a, a version of Shakespeare often in high school, and I'm not blaming high school teachers, but that's like not the Shakespeare that I understand Shakespeare to be. So I sort of disabuse them of those ideas, and I'm like, look, the plays are amazing, but they're about regular people and regular things like sex and disability. And like, that's why I was so struck, because I remember it, like, because that's the Shakespeare that I got was the, the like, highbrow, uh, like classy, posh British writer guy from 400 years ago who, nah. you know, and so when I read your stuff, it was so, like, your paper that, you, that you're working on right now, or the chapter of your book, rather, sorry, your, the chapter of your book that you're yeah. working on is so dirty. When you really, yeah. when you really <laughs> dig into it, it's a really, like, dirty retelling of Shakespeare. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is a whole new viewing of that. So, so... <laughs> Like, so how, yeah, so like, yeah, so let me stop rambling. How, how, no, no, not so, at all. I mean, the dirty, let me just say two things about the dirtiness, because that, that, that was like a perfect lead. And it was like, we planned it, even though I have notes, we didn't plan that listeners. Um, but I was going to say, like, I, I, I again, remind my students, I'm like, there are like dick jokes everywhere. In everywhere. It's so everywhere. <laughs> Totally. There are pens, there are loops, there are laps, there's all kinds of dying and all these things in early modern literature are, so Shakespeare and all his cronies, they're like puns and coded metaphors for penises and vaginas and orgasms and all kind of like um, interesting sex um, ideologies and practices. So it's a, it's a, sex and disability for me are kind of a logical merge. Um, in Shakespeare, and actually, to, I just use the phrase early modern literature. Like, should, do I need to clarify what I mean by that? Um, like, could you? Sure. Sure. Um, basically, drama and poetry that's written between like 1500 and 1700 in Europe and Britain, but because I'm specifically a Shakespearean, I focus on the, the English piece. So, just okay. to give our listeners a heads I'm up. also a giant history buff, so I love, I love that whole period of time, which, which also like really got me interested in your work because I tried about a year and a half ago to do a history and disability podcast, which... Really I remember one, you saying, yeah, right. There's only one episode and I never continued up on it, but then when I saw your thing, I was like, maybe I can I can merge my sex show and my... The, <laughs> like, so, like, 
it's super <laughs> awesome. But also, I want to ask you, like, as an aside, during that period of time from, like, the 1500s to, like, the 1700s in the UK, do you did you do any research on, like, what was the status of disabled people then? Yes. I mean, that's a great question. That's basically what my book that is under review right now that I'm you know, hoping is going to be out in the next year or so um, is about. It's called Beholding Disability in the English Renaissance. And it is in part, in large part, basically, it's an argument for disability gain and disability con- conservation and, and how important disability is to the world. But it, but it does that historically. And it offers these little kind of micro histories. And the, the, the sort of short version is, um, in terms of specifically answering your question, is like there are, um, you know, there are, dis- there are disabled people all over England and Britain. Um, and in fact, like maybe even more so in terms of like we had, you know, like rampant war, chronic illness, sanitation problems. So I think the, the presence of illness and impairment would have um there would have been a lot of it, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe even more so than than now, particularly in a place like the U.S. Um, but what I'm interested in is like where authors are, are thinking about um, their own status as a disabled person or using disability representation, um, but not as like bad metaphor or like is to to stigmatize, you know, but like doing something beautiful and really creative with it. Yeah. Um, so stigma, stigma, yes. Disabled people, I think disability identity wouldn't look like looked like the same as now in the same way that like people were doing queer sex practices, but they weren't like, we're queer people, you know? Yeah. I, I, I got a sense from reading your, the chapter you sent me that like during that time, disabled people and sex, it was just a part of life. Like it just felt from the way you put it in the, in the chapter, it just felt like it was just a, another part of life and it was another part of what people experience, which is in stark contrast to now, where it's like, oh goodness, disabled people have sex? Like, shocker. Yeah, I think that they're, you know, that part of the, not that disability as we know it now gets invented at a particular moment. I mean, some scholars have kind of argued that, that that happens with industrialization and, um, you know, that that the medicalization of the, like, the late 18th and early 19th centuries creates the kind of thing that we know as disability now. I think there's a lot more kind of vestiges and relics of that in the early modern, as far back as the early modern period and before. So, you know, it, it's both, it's both always, I think, kind of totally natural and normal, but also not, you know, because authors are sort of saying like, well, duh, yeah, but there are other narratives that show disabilities as really stigmatizing as things that would exclude people, not so much from like, um, you know, the political sphere, but more from like social circles, right? Or from other other kinds of labor, right? Um, so, so yes and no, I guess, you know, like, uh, but part of, I guess, what I want my book to do and the authors that I'm looking at show us is that like, I mean, right, disability is just normal and sex is normal and it's like all part of, or like fuck normal. It's like this other thing, like this great universe, right? Where like that's it's just how people are and the things that they do. Yeah, yeah. And what I love about your your the chapter is that you really talk about how how both sexuality and disability really kind of brussle up against this idea of normal sex and how both those things, queerness, HIV, all that stuff, and disability and all those things like brussle up against this idea of normal and say, well, fuck normal. That's not that's not a thing. And so like. I really like that you're saying that disability because of disability, all these like 
kink is a thing we start talking about more. Um, mm-hmm. Like HIV mm-hmm. and queerness is a thing we talk about more. But and you know you say quite clearly in your in your chapter that this is because disabled people exist and they kind of brought this need for outside to look outside the box to the forefront. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and as a literary, literary historian, and I can say more about that later if you want. But like, I, I'm, oh, I'm really. This is giving me like so much academic. Bonus <laughs> right now. I can't, I'm, I'm excited. Very excited. Well, well, I, you know, I think that as a as a historian, we have to think a lot about time and like what is our relationship to the past and how do we see ourselves in the past? How do we not see ourselves in the past? What kind of doors were early modern authors opening up, right, through their representations, through their plays, through their poetry? And where are they asking us to think about ourselves as as really different, right, but still, but still learn from them? Or where do we see these really deeply profound resonances that are like, oh, yeah, right, that that makes total sense. And, and there's a kind of, um, to my mind, you know, in this particular case, a kind of disability activist precedent that gets set, right? Even even as, you know, in the works of somebody like Shakespeare. I mean, he's not saying I'm a disability activist, right? But he's saying some pretty radical things about disability in certain moments. Wasn't he also disabled? Like I've heard, I, I didn't Google it, but I heard like way back in the day that he also had like illnesses or he had disabilities somewhere. Or he was... So I don't, I have never... This is actually this is hilarious that you're asking this because I haven't actually thought much about sort of Shakespeare's own personal status as disabled. I tend to not um, think a lot about biography. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people who are like really invested in like who was he? Was he? Is he even a person? Yeah, like, yeah. You know the, the the kind of whole debate. And I'm I'm more interested in the work per se. So like. What is the drama? What is the poetry doing? What is it saying? And less about kind of authorial intent or the person who's behind it. Like I said a minute ago, it's it's possible. I mean, I haven't heard any kind of folkloric stuff about his status as disabled, but it's 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 possible. I mean, I think people just because of conditions in the world, right? In in the UK at the time, like the disability um, or impairment per se would have been a lot a lot more prevalent. So maybe maybe I don't know. Maybe you gotta write that. You gotta write that next book. I mean, maybe, maybe, we, should, maybe we should write a book together. I don't know. Um, sex, disability, Shakespeare by me. Uh, um, so there's a, there's one Shakespeare play that you cite in the chapter that you're working on right now, called Measure for Measure, which I had never heard of until I read your until I read your work. Um, and what in the chapter you show, and from what I read, it speaks to crib sexualities a lot. In the chapter, can you kind of kind of break down for for us how how measure to measure for measure does this and, and yeah sure and I was thinking I could give you a little plot rundown first yeah so please like, yeah so because also it's such a great play it's it is it was written around 1603 and it's this like super dirty really sexy play that's all about. Um, illicit desire and sexual transgression. So I'm already like, okay, I'm, I'm like reading this, working, working on this, teaching this to my students. So it's set in Vienna. And um, this is important because Londoners and English playwrights in particular love to pick on Italy and like really mock the Italians as the home of like all debauchery. I mean, they were like, look at, look, look at Vienna. We'll never be like them. Meanwhile, London totally was, right? So Shakespeare sort of tongue in cheek sets, sets this play 
in Vienna. And basically, um, broad brushstrokes, and then I'll give you a little more like intricacies of the plot, but there's a sex craze that is like kind of grip the city. And like everybody's fucking and um, because of this sort of rampant fornication, it, it's the, the, the beginning of the play couches it as this kind of hub of immorality and licentiousness. And somebody needs to step in and to like morally legislate the city. Like that's that's where the play begins. So they basically, so they basically want the sex police to come in and say, "No, you can't fuck anymore." <laughs> that's exactly, and and like the the whole beginning of the play is like, "Oh my god, we've got to like tear down these brothels, and like we've got like all these male and female prostitutes, and like why is every?" And then there's this other couple who this they're um, they're. Uh, they're supposed to be married soon, but they, of course, have already had sex and she gets pregnant, he gets put in prison because she's a pregnant person. And like, so sex is the key problem of the play. Um, And then there's this other part of the plot. This is also why I love this play so much. There's this like nun in training who, so she's not a nun yet, but she's just like come to the convent and like getting ready to be nunnish. And, um, and so there's this nun in training and there's this supposedly like really stoic deputy. He, he's like the police, right? Who's running the city in the absence of this, the real Duke who's supposed to be running the city. Like the but deputy sheriff of the place. Exactly. And, and basically the Duke has pieced out because he secretly thinks that this deputy who's called Angelo is going to do a better job being the sex police. So he's like, I'm going to put you in charge and I'm going to dress up as this. I mean, Shakespeare's so amazing. As I'm telling you this, I'm like laughing to myself. Like, this is my job. So the, 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 the <laughs> like the Duke says, um, uh, I'm gonna like dress up like a friar, but he doesn't really tell many people. And I'm gonna like creep around and like watch what's happening and and be like the actual like secret secret police. But but Angelo, you're gonna be the deputy who's gonna have to it do all this. It sounds very, you know what? It sounds like Game of Thrones. Yeah, well, okay, right. I mean, the Game of PS Game of Thrones is like a total Shakespeare ripoff. I know, I know, <laughs> I, know. I know. It's like Shakespeare meets Lord of the Rings or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so. Just to like close this loop on the plot, of course, what happens is that the deputy Angelo, who's supposed to be really prim and proper in the sex police, ends up propositioning the nun, the soon-to-be nun Isabella, and then gets busted publicly for doing this. Um, and there's this like really weird dramatic ending that people, I, I like don't know how to feel about it. This is called one of Shakespeare's problem plays. Generically, we don't really know where to put it. Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? It's like just kind of unsettling, but like great. Um, so that's our that's our plot setup. Okay. Um, and because it's such a sort of sexy play, and that is also really about a city that is concerned about the the, the potential problem of contagion, I, I one of the things that I'm arguing, and stop me if you're like, okay, this is getting like weirdly academic or whatever. No, I, I'm anyone who who listens to well. The, the show is generally not academic, but it's like, it's hitting all my, my like weird academic, like things I love to do. So go to town. <laughs> Everyone is a closet academic, it turns out. I love it so much. <laughs> um, well, so anyway, this first argument in the in the book chapter, I, I make a case for aligning the historical phenomena of like early modern epidemics of a sort, but around like syphilis and the plague with um, 1980s U.S. AIDS culture. You had mentioned the HIV stuff before. So, like, I wanted, I'd been teaching on HIV. I was, like, working on Kushner's Angels in America and some other great um, 
great plays about HIV with my students. And I was like, oh my God, it turns out like there's a, there's again, a resonance here between the, um, the measure for measure play, um, and us AIDS culture in the eighties. So basically I talk about what I see as bug chasing, like practices in the play. I don't know. Are, are you familiar with that? Or yeah. listeners familiar yeah. with that? Okay. Um, so, you know, that there are, are these characters who know that they're likely to become syphilitic if they have intercourse, but they like actively desire disability in this case, uh, contagious, you know, um, illness, um, as a mode of intimacy and, they, you know, so I love these characters because they're like, fuck sexual domestication. Like, I'm like really into like unruly crip corporeality. Like there are all these quarantine or they're trying to make all these quarantine spaces and discourses that are, are supposed to be about health and wellness and cleanliness and able-bodiedness. And the play really calls into question those norms. And I think um, privileges in a way, um, really cool crip sensibilities that are not just refusing normalcy, but, but refusing these mandates through sex practices, right. To be safe and well and healthy. Yeah. And I think, I think it speaks to a lot of like what we're dealing with right now in terms of like disability and sexuality, still all the contagion stuff, like, Oh no, if I sleep with a disabled person, will I get this? Or if I, if I sleep with it, it's, it's a little bit different now when, when we're talking about, physical disabilities, it's like, oh no, if I sleep with a disabled person, will I hurt them? If I sleep I, with a disabled person, will they need my help? Like, it's not necessarily contagion anymore. It's about like, if I sleep with you, will I have to be a part of your life? Yes, yeah. So it's a kind of metaphorical, if I'm hearing you, I think you're totally right. I think it's a kind of metaphorical iteration of this more like material, like real thing that I'm thinking about, which is like actual cultures of contagion, but that are in this case, liberatory spaces right and not like police states like the one that you that you've just described um p.s i wanted to like give a shout out if we're going to be dorky and academic to like a couple of scholars and stuff that maybe people that people might want to take up so um um there's an amazing scholar disability studies scholar called chris bell who um, passed away, but he has incredible work on both disability and race and on AIDS culture and cultures of so-called illness. So um, like somebody to look up and find his work and like um, really sort of sad that that Chris is not around to to produce more stuff because he also writes really passionately and personally. So about his own experiences with HIV, et cetera. So anyway, shout out, shout out there. He is somebody that I will, he, they, he, he, he. Yeah, yeah. He is someone that I will, I'll put, I'll find some stuff and put a link in the show notes because more people should hear, but I didn't know until you mentioned him, so I'll make sure he's in there. Yeah. Um, well, so there were, there was kind of three points that I make in that article. Do we want to talk about the other ones or like, is that good or? Sure we do. Let's do Okay. The, and these are these are a little bit the the argument in the article that I sent to you, which is blown out, and then that longer version in the book, it's a little bit shorter regarding measure for measure. So I'll just kind of breeze through them. But the other thing I was really interested in because I was also teaching um, some of this stuff in my disability studies class um, was to think about sex facilitation um, and specifically the way that it, there's this encounter between that nun Isabella that I was talking about and the 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 schemer, um, the Duke Angelo, or rather the deputy Angelo, um, and, and how 
there's this exchange between them, but that there's like a third party in on it who is kind of like facilitating this masturbatory discourse that they have together. And I was teaching Mark O'Brien, um, another shout out, Mark O'Brien's old but super great essay about uh, uh, called On Seeing a Sex Surrogate. Uh, do you know that piece? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I talked about him in, when I reviewed the sessions. I did a review. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, totally. I did a review for the for the of the sessions. And I like talk a little bit about him and like I basically skewer the sessions and be like, um, that yeah, thank you for that. I know wasn't my favorite film, uh, but yeah. So Mark O'Brien's great. The the people who who were playing him not so much. Well, it's funny you say that because I in my disability studies class I always when I teach the O'Brien piece I um. I always teach also, well, we, we look at the trailer to the sessions. I'm like, you don't even have to watch the movie and we're not going to. I'm like, let's just look at the trailer and then do a disability studies, like close reading of this for like how problematic it is. And they're so, my students are so good about just immediately being like, wait a minute, weird, like humor to cover like disability and like overcoming narrative. And like, why do we have to make it into like a super, like, like, Hetero, Why is Helen Hunt I, the hero of that story? I, I know, totally, I mean, totally. I love Helen Hunt. Look, Mad About You is one of my favorite shows from back in the yeah. day. I'm all about that. And I'll, I'll watch Twister on a loop. It's great. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I don't understand why Helen Hunt got the accolades in that movie. This is a long, this is an aside. And if people are listening, like, wait, you're supposed to be talking about Shakespeare. What the hell? We were just having a moment that Helen Hunt doesn't, didn't deserve the Oscar. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, I, it, I, I think actually for me as a teacher pedagogically pairing that trailer and the problems with that movie with the Mark O'Brien, like it just works so well. Students are like, oh, yeah, totally. We see all that. And anyway, so, so to get back to the Shakespeare bit, I just was teaching that and thinking a, a lot about this moment in this play and in others where we see um what I, what I think is is it's not exactly the same, but is kind of akin to a, to sex a certain kind of sex facilitation, even if it's a little more metaphor, metaphorical. It also like opens up the space to kind of talk about that as a thing because people are like, wait, what? You know? Yeah, I mean, I just I just think it's really I just think I got, and there's also a scene in the play where you talk about um, one of the characters helping another character. Yeah, that I think that's the scene we're talking about. Like exactly. D'Angelo helps the 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 nun to bed or something and then yeah, it's well it's like Lucio who is this like great bod he's like a pimp and a prostitute and like like um like interesting really interesting figure one of the one of the figures that I talk about in the context of um um sort of intimate like liberatory cultures of contagion but he he's like in on this conversation between the the deputy, the sketchy one, Angelo, who's supposed to be stoic and and uh, you know sex policing, and he's not. Instead, he's hitting on the nun, and he like facilitate, like lubricates. I think is the language that I use, but like lubricates this like this uh, like verbal sex encounter essentially that happens between them. Um, although I should say that when I gave this talk at, um, you're reminding me when I gave this talk at Madison. Afterwards, um, folks were like, hey, you need to like get a better gender intersection into this analysis because in your in your attempts to do a kind of disability gain read, like what are the ways that we see new kinds of radical sex practices and new ways of thinking about embodiment? Like, like 
Isabella, like, it's a little bit, like, gross and terrible. And, and they were right. And they're like, you don't, you need to think about the women in this play and how, like, they're actually getting shat on most of the time. And, like, how does that inflect your, you know, your reading? And I was really grateful for that because they're right. The people in the audience were totally right. Yeah, yeah. When you present a paper like this or present an idea like this to audience, audiences that may not have thought about putting Crip and Shakespeare together, what is the response? Like, what do people say when, when you're like, what was the response when you brought it to, like, your, <laughs> your people that were like, I want to write about this? What do people say? Well, um, you know, typically I think, like, in, in a, like, paper setting, um, like, people see me and I, like, have a mohawk and they're like, oh, okay, well, like, well, let's just, like, get on board with this person who, in maybe in certain ways, doesn't appear to be sort of whatever a typical academic might be. And so I'm like, you know, I kind of grease the wheels a little bit. And then generally people come along. I mean, when when you do disability studies, the folks who usually end up in the room are, like, already kind of on board. So then when you're like, now let's talk about, like, Crip sex practices and Shakespeare and whatever, like they're, they're a pretty game audience. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to your point, like ideally when this book comes out, it's going to be for, um, it's an academic book, but I tried to write it for as broad an audience as possible. And it'll be interesting to see if people are like, no, I don't buy it. Right. Or like, why are you talking about that? Or if there's any kind of resistance, but I guess we'll have to, to wait, wait and see what happens on that one. But, um, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I just think it's so cool that you even, because I would never have thought to, like, put these two things together. So the fact that, and I, when I first, when we first Skyped, like, a few months ago, and I would, like, just sat down with you to say hello, you saw how excited I was. I was like, I'm never, this is, like, a brand new uh-huh. I think the fact that you are putting this kind of scholarship into the world is really important because we're told so many times throughout history that disability was never where are we where is our yeah. stories and where, so to see this to see disability being represented in a way that is subtle but still there and like it's kind of cool and somebody's saying yeah this actually is connected to disability as opposed to like just white able-bodied men being artsy 400 years ago totally like, thank you for saying that i really appreciate it. that's you just articulate like that's the politics of the work. It's really important. Like disabled people have histories. They tell stories. I mean, um, and, and I think popping that out and sort of saying like, these are not, these are not apolitical texts. Right. And, and even if they were like, because the world is the way that it is, we can use literature to be explicitly political and to like make shit better, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, and I, you know, and so I, I like I read your whole thing last night and I was like I when I was done I was like I don't know half of what I read but it's really yeah. awesome. it's super awesome I don't see that but it's you know it's so cool to see that kind of stuff out there because we don't have enough of that and so I just appreciate that you as a scholar were like I want to talk about this and it it really sparked my interest in like disability history again and disability stories and like it really made me like, wow, yeah, this is what I want to do. Like, this stuff is important. So I appreciate that. I do want to ask you, though, you mentioned a lot in your work in that chapter about pre-modern sex history. You say, quote, pre-modern sex histories that might inform contemporary 
contemporary something. I don't know. I didn't, well, like, I, I, yeah, I, I saw it in your question, but I think it was it said something like contemporary um, ideas or cultures about, around disability desire or something like that. Yeah. So my question is, what can the the Crips and the Gimps and the and the disabled people from the past tell us about our sexy Crip futures? Can they tell us anything? Yeah, I mean, I, this, I sort of alluded to this, I, I think a little bit earlier when I was saying like our job is my, I see like my job as a literary historian is to, to think about, about time and across time and how history works for the present and for the future. And I love this actually as a, as a segue from where we were a second ago, because I think the most basic answer to your question is that like old stories matter for, for new stories. I mean, yeah. Maybe, you know? Yeah. Like they work together, they work together and representations and images and narratives are how we make sense of the world. And so to recover historical vestiges of like cripness and crip sex practices and the stories around them, I think is really powerful. And I think to see like just if, if any listeners are, are like a Shakespeare buffs or like like early, early history text buffs and you want to read that play, read the like read some passages and you'll see what we're talking about, how quickly like disability is definitely talked about there. Um, how do you think seeing that 400 years ago could change the way we talk about disability now? Yeah, well, so I, I want to give two more shout outs, actually. So one is to um, to another disability scholar. Her, her name uh, is Sammy Schalk. And she has this really awesome new book called I Body. I have her on my Twitter. I think well, Twitter you probably friends. do. Yeah. Body Minds Reimagined. It's really, really great. It's on um, like disability and blackness and speculative fiction and like new world building, basically. But she in that book says, you know, we need to imagine our world otherwise. And this actually this is a quote from her. It's a quote. This is why I have my notes. Representation matters in material, concrete and life affirming, life changing ways. And I just love that because that that's a reminder about like the modes through which we think about things. So like like the stories we tell, right, they change the way that we think about things. And so to to unearth right these older stories and be like, look, people were here, they had a voice, people were thinking about this, disability is good, right? We can trace that forward, right, and make make different futures. Well, I mean, look, if Shakespeare was writing about them, whether explicitly or implicitly, if he was writing about them in code or whatever, it means they were there in the in the day-to-day -day world, which means that why are we so afraid to talk about disability now? Like, if Shakespeare, totally. if Shakespeare can write a play about disabled people or in contagion and HIV and queerness and all that stuff 400 years ago, why can't, why is like a groundbreaking now? Exactly. Right. That, that's what the point. It's not, this is, a, at the very least, it's like, this is a historical phenomenon. Like, why, why would we imagine disability to be something so sort of spectacular? And I mean that in the broadest sense of the word, but like, and notable and, um, and for a lot of folks who don't identify as disabled, but like as like oddly off-putting, it's like it's just people be, being in the it's being in the world, in the you world, know. And they happen to be disabled, and here they there they were. I was going to say too. So there are a couple of two other scholars, um, Abby Wilkerson and Robert McRuer, who are disability study scholars who have done a lot of work around um, sex and disability. Both of them are on my Twitter. You are like with all the cool kids. Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, I knew you were, but, um, but they, they have, um, they have a phrase where they basically, they, what they say is that we want to create quote, 
desirable disabled worlds that are not founded on the normalization of disabled people. And I love that because that for me is like radical politics. And I'm like, we can use history to do that. Like it stresses the way that, that we need to talk about and relish. I mean, you do this on your, on your show, right? Like we need to, relish desires that are non-normative but that are also explicitly like unaccommodating right like 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 I, i'm not looking to be accommodated right in my in my, my sex in life my sex, right i want to just fuck right oh and like and i want to and i don't want to do that like like they're i don't know i just feel like crip sexualities for me it's is so important because it severs non-normative individuals from like shitty liberal projects that think they mean well and are doing like social tolerance, but, but they're actually hollow because they surreptitiously are demanding certain kinds of like assimilation and normalization, you know? And like, I think for me again, that maybe we're like coming full circle, but that merger of like, like cripness and sex and then the historical piece, it just helps to like, to, to find these places of like un- unaccommodating vibrancy and use them as really powerful tools. I just think that like, now I want to go back through like every Shakespeare play that I've ever read and be like, where yeah. is this disability <laughs> and how? Like, cause you know, when I was, like I said earlier, when I was reading the plays, I never considered this as, a, as an avenue to go down. I always considered it to be white able-bodied men talking about this bullshit. And for the most part they were, but could you imagine like Hamlet done by a disabled person? Could you imagine like, yeah. Romeo and Juliet done with disabled care. Like like can you imagine yeah. how that would change the way all the sexualization was talked about or, or shown on stage or shown like in a you know, however you want to do the in a movie? Like it would just change everything. So I I'm gonna do something really shameless right now, but I just okay. you can you like locked me right into it. So um if you happen to be any of these listeners, I don't know how soon this will come out, but I, there there'll be a um, there'll be a blog about it and maybe a podcast, but uh, this coming Monday, June 10th, I will be in London. Definitely not coming out this. <laughs> okay. Well, then, then people can can look it up later. But um, I am working with um, wonderful colleagues at the Globe Theater to put on um, uh, an open to the public. There, It's called a research and action workshop in the Sam Wanamaker Theater, which is a small indoor like uh jacobean remake theater that's that seats a couple hundred people that's inside the globe and when i pitched this to them um you know i forget when this was a couple years ago probably now i was like let's do a a workshop on um disability and drama disability and shakespeare and disability and early modern literature um and basically it it asked these questions about like what happens It, it starts with the point that you just made that like Disability is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. If you start looking for it, like you're like, it's in Shakespeare. It's in Haywood. It's in all every, all these writers are thinking about it in some way. And so like what happens when we put it at the heart of performance and what happens when we also invite amazing uh, actors who identify as disabled to explicitly play roles and be cross cast across disability. So they're not being tokenized to play like, Oh, you're mad. Therefore you have to play like the mad Hamlet, right? Like, you can play anything that you want to play, yeah. right? So I haven't met my actors yet, and um, I'm so excited to do this and to get in this room with all these people and do this like cool experimental theater that that sort of celebrates what happens when we do disability and put disability at the, at the heart of performance and, and think about it in the context of Shakespeare and not. That's really that's so exciting, and I secretly want to get in and play and, and 
God. do that with you. I would love to have you in the audience. I, I am, uh, because this is coming out later, I feel better about saying this now, but like, I'm like kind of nerve-sighted, you know? Like, That's I'm really- Nerve-sighted? I've never, heard, I've never heard that before. You just smush nervous and excited together. <laughs> I'm all about the portmanteaus. It's great. Um, so I, but I'm so looking forward to this and I'm just so grateful. I think it's going to be a really wonderful opportunity to kind of put in action, like all the things that we've been talking about. And what's cool is it's because it's open to the public, people just roll up and then like we talk with the audience about what they see and what they're learning and what they're thinking. So I think it'll be pretty rad. And to, to be in like the place where all of these things started and originated while also talking about disability, it's just that it's like, I'm going to be in London in September and I... I cannot wait. I'm so excited. It's the best. It's like one of the best cities on the planet. It's like so just it's But to be the, like to be talking about Shakespeare and disability in the place where Shakespeare I, did I know that that's why I'm nerve sighted. The stakes feel kind of high. <laughs> this is this is really important. This is like what I've been trying to, to get the word out about, you know, in my work. So I'm really I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. Um, I am just I could sit and listen to you talk for like hours, but we could, we should we should nerd out off the air. Um, okay, thanks for all the listeners who might still be listening. Yeah, to our if, you, if you turned Allison and I off and didn't understand why Andrew did a show like this, it was basically to satiate my nerdy like history. I love I love history. I love disability, and I've always wanted to put them together. And I tried to find a way to do it, and this was a cool way to try. And I don't know if it worked, but I love it. Well, and now we've decided that we have a like book project that we need to do. So like it's it's the beginning. It's the beginning of everything else. I can't of, wait. Like, a nice dorky academic friendship. It's awesome. Yes. Yes. Um. Uh. I don't have any more questions. I want to gab with you after I hit off. So, Professor Allison Hobgood, how do people get a hold of you? Um, I am at, um, you can look me up online. I'm at a H O B as in boy, G O O D like dog. And that's at Willamette W I L L A M E T T E dot E D U. Um, I am working on getting a personal website, so that's coming soon. Um, but if you Google me, you'll find me. I'm, I'm there. Um, and, um, I would love to. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I would love to hear from anybody who's still listening. Yeah, anyone who hasn't sworn off my show forever. Uh, <laughs> Let's open it. Should definitely contact Allison and me. And I, this was great. I had so much fun, and I'm gonna. Me too. Thank you so much for this. It was so much fun. I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit off, and we're gonna chat on the off the off the thing. Awesome. So okay, sounds great. Thank you so much, Bye. and we'll talk soon. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza, and thank you so much for listening and helping the show go. I really appreciate that you all listen and that you come back every week, and I love doing it, and I love shining a bright light on these topics, so thank you. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com where you'll find my writings, some cool videos I've been in, and you'll see where I've been talking, where I've been doing talks. And if you want to hire me to talk, you can do so there as well. If you want to follow me on the social media, you can put in all my handles on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook 
at the Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow the podcast specifically, you can follow us on Twitter at disaftdarkpod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash disabilityafterdark. This show is a completely independent production. I literally record the show here in my bedroom in Toronto, and that's awesome. So if you want to support this fully independent program, you can head over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark, and you can pledge $1 a month to get the show early and get really cool perks like that, and I, I will give you a shout-out on the air, and thank you for your support. It would be super awesome if you could also leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast so that this show, all about sexuality and disability, something we don't talk about enough, can get more traction and more people can hear about the show. Lastly, if you want to be a part of Disability After Dark, you can submit your suggestions, story ideas, or your minisodes to our email inbox, disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, we'll be back next time, right here on the program Shining a Bright Light on Sex and Disability, Disability After Dark. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations, with music by Chris Sujiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2019